Hello and welcome to Banter. I'm Phoebe Keller, the head of AEI's media department, and I'm here with Robert Doerr, AEI president, and we'll be your Banter hosts. Joining us today on Banter is Steve Koonin, who's a non-resident senior fellow with us at AEI, where he focuses on climate science and energy policies. He's also a professor at NYU. Previously, he served as the Undersecretary for Science at the U.S. Department of Energy under President Obama from 2009 to 2011. And last year, he published a new book, Unsettled, What Climate Science Tells Us, What It Doesn't, and Why It Matters. Thanks for joining us on Banter, Steve. Oh, great to be here. It's great to have Steve here in this, you know, midsummer day, July 20th. We're in Washington. It's hot here. But I, but I gather Europe is burning up. Steve, the New York Times, you know, has decided it wants to be the weather sheet of the world and covers the weather with great hysteria, it seems to me. Maybe I'm wrong. How should we view uh, the relationship between the heat wave in Europe and climate change? And how would you look at it? Yeah. So, so you know, weather extremes, of course, attract attention. And this is one example of them. We've seen temperatures of about 40 degrees centigrade in the UK over the last uh, few days. And looks like it's going to persist for another day or so. But, you know, there are extreme weather events, whether it's temperature or heat waves or floods or droughts that are happening all of the time. In fact, you can do a simple calculation. You should see a thousand year event, namely an event that happens on average once every thousand years. You should see that about once a month around the globe. And so there's always grist for the media to tout one extreme or another. Okay. I want to ask, because you, you threw in the, that sort of proviso, which I loved, and I can't wait to see how simple it is. What is the simple calculation you did to come oh, to right. that? Oh, right. So, so you can say, let's take the land area of the globe and cut it up into squares of about 100 miles on a side, which is kind of the extent of an extreme event. When you do that, I think you get something like 6,000. I can't remember the exact number. And then you could ask, you know, a very simple calculation. How often does a thousand-year event happen, given all of those 6,000 squares? Okay, got it. And then you multiply by, you know, a couple because it's rain fuel and it's temperature and so on. And it's about one a month. Yeah. It's just that there are a lot of places around the globe where stuff can happen. Yeah. And in the modern world, where we've got real-time coverage from almost anywhere in the globe, there's a lot for the media to talk about. Yeah. Now, okay. what, with respect to the current heat wave in um, Europe, a couple of remarks. What the Times didn't tell you, if you look at the official weather map for, let's say, yesterday at noon, somebody sent it to me, yes, there's a lot of heat in Western Europe. But if you go over to Ukraine and further on into Russia, there's unusual cold. <laughs> All right. It's about 10 degrees centigrade lower than average over there. And what you never hear about in the paper, at least in the U.S. papers, is even as we're seeing warmth in the northern hemisphere this summer, we're seeing record cold in the southern hemisphere. Uh, I, I was on the line with somebody from Australia, and they were looking at 20 degrees Fahrenheit at the moment. All right, So it's pretty cold down there. So I think the lesson is weather is highly variable. 
Uh, we see extremes all of the time, and we shouldn't get too excited about one particular extreme or another. That's just weather. What okay. we've got to look at is, you know, are we seeing extremes more and more often on time scales of 20 or 30 years? And right, that's what I was going to ask. Is 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 if you uh, you look at that too, I presume, or you you studied that, of course. and yeah. and and what I want to get is the connection to global warming. Is right is CO two and its effects on global warming, which you've acknowledged are is contributing something. Yep. Is it related to? Is it causing more weather extremes? Let's leave aside temperature for a moment because the globe is warming uh, in part due to human influences. Uh, but let's look at other things like hurricanes. No detectable long-term trends. When we look at droughts, when we look at floods, the IPCC, the most recent IPCC report back in August, has a, you have a really hard time finding some significant changes in weather extremes on the long time scale of many decades. Okay. All right. Before we go off of the extreme sort of the, because uh, this is a specialty of yours, is the way in which the media and, and advocates make things seem worse than they really are. You, you've yeah. written about this. Yeah. Yes. And, you, but, you want a wonderful recent example? Yes. From, uh, yeah. The New York Times on July 4th. You can read Paul Krugman's column. Now, you know, Krugman is a distinguished economist, Nobel Prize winner, and so on, but he's not a very good climate guy, all right? And here's what he wrote in the leader's piece. You know, the Earth is experiencing a heat wave, and, you know, temperatures in Norway are above 80 degrees. Well, it's easy enough to go back into the newspapers and the historical record to realize that temperatures of 90 degrees are not unusual in Norway in the summertime, simply because the sun is shining there yeah, I was gonna all say. the time. Yeah, right. All right. Yeah. So it actually gets more sunlight than the equator does during those summer months. So, you know, Krugman is exploiting most of our ignorance from most people about what really goes on in the Arctic. It's shameless. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about, I was just going to ask, because the thing you see on YouTube, yeah. maybe you guys have seen this, it's making on Twitter's, there's a, a clip of a, a shattered glacier and the shrinking uh, Arctic. What's the story on that? Yeah, well, you know, one of the things I looked at quite closely was uh, how fast Greenland, uh, the ice sheet on Greenland is shrinking. And when you look at the official record, again, not my data, but what you know, the Danish Meteorological Institute puts out, Yes, uh, we saw a rapid rise in the rate at which Greenland is shrinking from 1990 to about 2019 or so. It went up like five, or it was shrinking five times faster at the end of that time than at the beginning. But if you go back about 80 years, you discover it was shrinking just as rapidly as today uh, when human influences were much smaller then than now. And then it goes down in the 50s and then comes back up again starting in the 90s. And it's going down today. Uh, the last few years have seen a slowing in the rate at which Greenland is melting. And, you know, you could attribute that to cycles in the North Atlantic, which are pretty well known. And the betting is that over the next couple of decades, 
we're going to see less and less shrinking of Greenland. It's got nothing directly to do with uh, the warming globe, whether it's due to human influences that were warming or other influences. Okay. So we've covered those anxiety-producing uh, topics that you've now made me feel a little better. And so I greatly appreciate that, Steve. Now let's talk about the sort of disintegrating climate agenda of President Biden as his efforts to do things through Congress are, seem to fail. And, and I, I don't know the, the bullet list of all the things he wants to do, but let's, yeah. let's try to say something nice here. Is there some aspect of what the Biden administration or, or the Democrats or the people that are worried about climate want to do to our energy and to our, to our public policy that you yeah. like? If there was one thing they want to do that you, you do support, you think we should do, yeah, what would I, it be? Well, I, I think what we need to do is accelerate research, development, and demonstration of emissions light technologies. And uh, that is not only through direct government funding through the Department of Energy, but also through various tax incentives and other programs in the private sector. So we need to do that. But does that mean that that you're saying we should subsidize uh, uh, solar and wind? Well, I said the development and demonstration, subsidizing solar and wind to the point of deployment starts to lose my enthusiasm. I got it. Uh, demonstration. So these are other mm-hmm. other ways of other yeah, ways no, of generating yes. and, and and again, you know, there's a chain in technologies. There's the research into the basic technology. There is the demonstration of the technology at a viable scale, which gets to be pretty expensive to do that demo. And then there's the deployment yeah. of that technology throughout society. I'm all for the research and the demonstration. Got it. We need to drive the cost down of emissions light technologies. And I'll tell you which ones I like in a second. But beyond that, to subsidize either directly or through tax credits or whatever, the deployment of mature technologies, which is where the bulk of the money is getting spent by the government, uh, I think is not appropriate. Uh. That's a good free market economist there mm-hmm. for you. We like yep. that. Yep. And exactly. you're a physicist. <laughs> so, uh, uh, well, you know, <laughs> okay. but I understand basic principles. All yes. right. And, right. Yes. So okay. what was the one, the something you were going to tell me in a second? The, 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 yeah, so, so I'm, I'm going to give you two or three technologies that I like a lot. Okay. One is fission, nuclear power. Nuclear power has the advantage that it is emission free. Uh, no greenhouse gases. And more importantly, for the grid, it can be turned on and off. It's always there when you need it, as opposed to wind and solar, which are there when the wind blows or the sun shines, but otherwise are not available. But that's been course, deployed already. I, uh, I thought you said you, you want, I thought you were doing a. Uh, no, no, well, so, so what I want is not the big fission plants. And as you correctly point out, 19% of the U.S. electricity is powered by nuclear right now. The problem is we haven't built a nuclear plant in this country in, I don't know, 20 or 30 years. We've got one under construction now, and uh, it's running into trouble because of uh, delays and cost increases. The, the 
frontier here in the technology is to make them small. I got it. Small modular reactors at maybe one-tenth the size of the big ones. And you could say, why do you want to do that? Well, it's really uh, regulatory and economic reasons. The regulatory reason is that you would build these in a factory, all the same design, ship them to where you want to site them on a flatbed uh, rail car or a truck, and then put it in the ground. Much easier to license that sort of thing than the big ones, every which one of which is built custom. The second economic reason is that the cash flow problems will be much easier. You know, for a big nuclear reactor, you put down 10 or $15 billion and hope to pay that off over 30 years as um, you generate and sell electricity. With these little ones, you put the first one in the ground, use the cash flow from it in order to finance the second one and pay off the first one, and so on, as you add, say, four or five to a site. So there are a couple of companies um, in the U.S. New Scale is one of them, a startup, that uh, have designs that are being reviewed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they hope to have the first one in the ground by the end of the decade. You were going to tell us another one, another new new technology? I, I think technologies for the management of the grid are very important. You know, we don't have very good ways of storing electricity. You have to generate it when you use it. If you can have economic ways of storing electricity at scale, you can have um, more renewables, solar and wind, because you can store the electricity when you don't need it, but it's being generated, and then you can uh, pipe it to users when you do need it. And then the third technology I would uh, like to see us push harder on are non-carbon vehicle fuels. So right now we run our vehicles on uh, gasoline, uh, for for passenger cars in the U.S., and diesel for heavy-duty transport. They they involve, they are hydrocarbons, so they're made of carbon and hydrogen, and so when we burn them, they emit CO2. If we could use something else, and in particular, let's say ammonia for heavy-duty vehicles, Ammonia is nitrogen and hydrogen, not carbon and hydrogen, and so you would avoid the carbon dioxide emissions. You'd have to emit nitrous oxide, or not the oxides of nitrogen generally, but much more benign than the CO2. So that's another one. And then finally, you know, they are promoting the electrification of what we call the light-duty free uh, passenger cars and light trucks, and I think that's a good thing in due course. Everything, you know, the energy system doesn't like to change rapidly. And so everything's got to be done with a gradualness and a thoughtfulness. Otherwise, you get disruptions both in uh, energy services uh, and also people get really mad if you push things too hard. Yeah. So uh, we talked about what you like about a climate yeah. agenda. What What is that? You mentioned you don't like big subsidies to already deployed industries, but what else don't you like that really worries you or you, you would be you would be strongly yeah. opposed to if you were in Congress? There are, let me give you it. There are at least two of them that, that come to mind uh, mm-hmm. uh, off the top. One is the um, goal of making the electrical system, the grid, 
emissions-free by 2035. Okay, so that's only 12 or 13 years from now, 13 years from now. And you can't build a grid on just wind and solar. There are 1,800 fossil fuel power plants in the country. If you want to make them all disappear by 2035, you have to decommission 11 per month between now and 2035. And that is going to cause tremendous chaos on the grid. So that's one I don't like at all. The other thing I don't like is the attempt to infuse climate risk into all aspects of the government, especially financial matters. The SEC regulations, for example, it's completely bonkers. Nobody, Nobody can predict climate risk 20 or 30 years out. The models are just not up to it at all. And and so I think that needs, uh, first of all, we shouldn't be doing it. And if somebody thinks that they want to do it, you should really do a rigorous discussion of just how well you can calculate uh, climate risk. One of the things that I always feel like is just completely missing from conversations and news coverage of climate change is just this the sense of the limitation of what the U.S. on its own can change. Oh, yeah. um, and you've yeah. done a great job in your writing of demonstrating just, you know, even if we reduce carbon emissions to zero, it really would have globally yeah. not much impact. And so I think that that and especially kind of the role of these energy sources in the developing world is something that people don't think about enough in the conversation around some of these energy sources. Could you kind of talk a little bit about what the timeline could look like for reducing carbon emissions in the U.S. compared to like the EU and then compared to developing countries. So to slightly generalize or put what you just said under a a single umbrella, the global perspective is almost always absent Mm -hmm. from U.S. discussions of mitigation, namely reducing emissions. And I think you hit the two aspects of it. And let me just put a little color on each one. One is It hardly matters what the U.S. does in reducing emissions compared to the global picture directly. Right now, the U.S. is about 13 or 14 percent of global emissions. Every year, we emit about one-seventh of what the globe total is. And that number is shrinking because the rest of the world, the developing world, uh, is emitting more and more as uh, it secures the energy it needs. So even if the U.S. were to go to zero tomorrow, it would be that that decreased would be negated Mm. by about a decade's worth of growth in the rest of the world. So, you know, you want to put the U.S. economy and U.S. well-being through the, um, frankly, torture it's going to be to decarbonize significantly Mm -hmm. when it's not going to really make much difference. The second aspect, the global aspect that you mentioned, is that the rest of the world needs energy. There are about 6 billion people in the developing world, namely outside the U.S., EU, Japan, other developed countries. Those people need energy in order to develop, to improve their lives. And today, fossil fuels are the most convenient and reliable way to meet that demand. And those countries are going to do what they need to do in order to get that energy, which means to use fossil fuels. And uh, people have pointed out, Alex Epstein in particular, it's immoral to deny those developing countries 
that energy. So, you know, when any, anybody says, we need to reduce emissions, you know, I like to say, who's the we? Okay. Yeah, right. So speaking uh, of people reducing yeah. emissions and a real crisis in energy, let's talk about Europe and then yeah. what's happening because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right. I don't have any reluctance to say, let's do everything we can to get as much oil and gas to Europe as possible so they can get through the winter absent the use of Russian energy. Do you have any reluctance about that? I mean, why shouldn't we pull no, out all the stops? Right. You, you know, there is a, I, I mean, most people are familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of human needs, right? And it starts with food and shelter and then goes to safety and security and then self-worth and so on. There's a Maslow-like hierarchy for energy. The first requirement, the most fundamental requirement is that it be reliable. The second, on top of that, it be affordable. And then the third is clean or green, if you like. And right now, Europe is suffering because it does not have reliable or affordable energy. And that's the first thing that they have to have. Then you can think about green emissions. And Europe has realized that themselves, okay? You've got Germany burning more coal. You've got the International Energy Agency telling Europe you've got to burn more coal this winter because they are going to be in trouble with respect to uh, inadequate amounts of natural gas as it gets cold. Can the United States uh, energy producers help Europe? Yes, we can. It's a little tricky. Um, We could, not on a very rapid timescale, but on the timescale of a year or two, crank up U.S. domestic oil production. Uh, That's pretty straightforward to do. You've got to have the right regulatory and economic environment for it. And frankly, the administration has not been very forthcoming with that. But we can produce more oil to make up for the shortfall in uh, uh, Russian oil. I'm surprised you say... Sorry. I'm surprised you said it would take that long. I had the impression that American or United States oil production sort of went by the price. The price rose to a certain level, all of a sudden... Yep, yep. Well, shale oil is what we're really talking about. I got it, I got it. And it takes six months or so to drill a well or secure the permits and all that sort of thing. Uh, And then the well's produced for a couple of years. So we can ramp it up, but you've got to have the right economic and regulatory signals for the oil. We have ways of, you know, oil is a global commodity. It gets moved around. And so adding more oil to the market will certainly help with the price. You were going to mention gas. Yeah, gas is more difficult because we don't have a good way of transporting gas other than pipelines, and we don't have a pipeline to Europe from the U.S. Yeah, okay. We do have liquid, liquefied natural gas, LNG, uh, which we move in ships. And the problem there is that we don't have enough um, shipping terminals in the U.S., to be able to ship uh, more gas uh, to Europe. And one of them is down because of a fire somewhere in Louisiana, I think. So we could do more, but it's going to take you know a couple of years to build the LNG terminals. The gas industry would love to be able to do that, to be able to export more, but it's kind of trapped here in the U.S. at the moment. I'm going to sort of sidetrack here, and maybe this is a question you don't want to answer, but 
Now I can't resist asking this one last question for you since I've got you and I've always wanted to ask you. <laughs> you guys might not know this, Phoebe, you don't know this, but in a previous life, I was a operator of a tree nursery. No, I did not. I didn't know that. That's very green. It's very green. Very green. (laughs) Oaks and and maples and Uh, London Plains. And Annie Leibovitz, Uh, the famous photographer, photographer. bought bought 10 of my London Plains once. It was a big day for us. She lined lined her her, her shoots. Her house in Rhinebeck. She had a house in Rhinebeck. (laughs) And she had five. London London Plain is a is a city's tree. It's a great tree. Um, It's also called the Sycamore. And... uh, uh, she right. loved them, and so she had them at her place in Rhinebeck, New York. <laughs> uh, but but so I have an affection for trees. I love right. trees. Good. So good. now we've got Steve on the line. Mm-hmm. Steve, are, is tree planting a good thing for combating climate change? It certainly helps. And let me just say a word about the science behind that. Every year, about 200 billion tons of carbon flow up and back between the Earth's surface and the atmosphere. And that flow up and back is due to the growth of plants and the decay of plant matter uh, when it's not growing. We humans, by using fossil fuels, are disrupting that equilibrium by adding about 9 billion tons a year to that annual flow up and back. If we can grow more plants, and of course trees are in that category, then we can lock up a bit more of that carbon uh, and take it out of that annual cycle. And so, yes, planting trees is a good idea. You know, people talk about a trillion tree initiative for sucking carbon out of the air, and I think Congress even approved some number of hundreds of millions or billions of dollars uh, to help with that program. The next step, of course, would be to genetically engineer the trees or other plants so that they would grow faster and suck more carbon out of the earth, out of the atmosphere more rapidly. So, yeah, I'm a great fan of more trees sitting here in the mid-Hudson Valley, there you go. Uh, maybe there you 20 go. miles <laughs> south of... I'm, and now it occurs to me I should call you in as a consultant yes. since I've got an enormous number of trees on my property and some of them need a little bit of attention. Yes, well, you can really prune them, just don't... Really benefit this business. <laughs> just don't cut them down. No, yeah, I'm, right, I'm exactly. I'm a big believer exactly. in yep, pruning, yep. but don't cut them down. Mm-hmm. The, uh, right. So, since we're on the topic of, of, of natural contributors to to either diminishing yep. climate change. Where are you on cows? Ah, okay. So, um, this is a yeah, good topic. So, oh, I know. It's, it is. No, this is very serious. On trees and on cows. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right, right. So 25% of global emissions come from agriculture in the broader sense. Uh, a lot of that is methane, which uh, is a potent greenhouse gas but it's not as problematic as CO2 because it only lives for about 12 years. And so if we cut down the production, uh, the emission of methane, then it will disappear in 12 years, whereas CO2 lives for hundreds of years in the atmosphere. Now, that methane comes from a variety of sources, waste uh, treatment. Rice paddies are potent uh, generators of methane, the bacteria in them generate methane, but some fraction of that methane also comes from ruminants, cows, sheep, goats, and so on. 
And as they digest, they will emit methane. Now, it is problematic about how you can eliminate that, even though it's a relatively small uh, factor in greenhouse gases. uh, It's problematic to get rid of it uh, because... Everybody likes meat, and as you know, problematic. Trying, problematic. Yeah. My wife comes from a dairy farm. Problematic. Yeah, yeah. We can't do uh, it. Right. You gotta right. have right. cows. So, right. So, so the, the notion of net zero, at least with respect to agriculture, is even more of a fantasy than it is with respect to energy. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, I, another aspect of agriculture is that it contributes a small amount to greenhouse gases, but has a much more important local uh, impact is nitrous oxide. And this has got to do with artificial fertilizer, chemical fertilizer, Mm -hmm. and uh, the way it changes the local environment, algal blooms, for example. As you may know, there's been a big flap about that in Holland over the last while, uh, where the government is trying to reduce the use of chemical fertilizer which means less agriculture in Holland. That's, of course, made the farmers furious. Uh, and there have been demonstrations with the police shooting at tractor demonstrations and so on. The same thing happened in Sri Lanka, where the yes. prime minister or president, right, he said last year, no more chemical fertilizers. And, of course, what happened is rice yields crashed in Sri Lanka. They lost the foreign exchange that they generated by exporting uh, rice, and so the country's poor, it can't buy fuel, other food, and of course there was a popular uprising, and they threw the guy out. Yeah. Um, so, you know, the lesson is, if you're going to make changes in these fundamental systems, do it gradually and do it thoughtfully, otherwise you're going to disrupt things so much that nobody's going to want to do anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, this has been a lively conversation as always with you, Steve. I don't have those are the things I wanted to talk about. <laughs> okay, no, Bibi, do you have anything else you want to well, get out of Steve while I we mean, got him? Now that we've had him weigh in on trees and cows, I have an even harder one. <laughs> Other climate scientists. Oh, <laughs> um, oh boy. No, I mean I'm just I'm curious that when you talk to other people in this field And a lot of whom do seem to really play into kind of the media narrative on a lot of these issues, a lot of these doomsday situations. Do you feel like you are reading the data differently than they are? Or do you think it benefits them to paint this as an emergency? Like, how do you see people coming down so far on the other side of the issue? Yeah, I I think there's very little disagreement about the data and, and what it says. And when you get the scientists in private, uh, fora, then uh, you can have a good scientific conversation and they'll agree pretty much with everything I said, but then there's the yeah, but. And I think part of the problem is that the, in climate science in particular, but also in some of the social sciences in climate, the scientists are confusing their role as informing the discussion as opposed to determining the discussion. As we've been talking about for the last while in this conversation, what we do about energy and climate involves much more than climate science. Yes. It involves values, uh, relative risks, trade offs. Um, trade offs. I mean, this is the real world of policy making, right? Yeah. And it is, I would say, improper for scientists to 
pitch the science description in a way that is aimed at determining the outcome. Because there are so many voices that need to be heard in this values priorities discussion. And and so I think that's what's happened. They've let their own values be dominant over the scientific ethos of telling it truthfully, completely, and without bias. Yeah. Reminds me of the conversations around the lockdowns and COVID, kind of the same Same situation of, you know, a niche group of public health or scientists not weighing any other consideration. Yeah. And and that's a wonderful analogy. You know, the the public health folks, if they had their way, they would lock down everybody. Mm -hmm. Whereas other people involved in shaping society, particularly the governors or Congress, realize that there are other, you know, downsides to locking everybody down. And so you saw that debate play out in real time in the different states. And it was, again, a question of values and priorities. I'm not going to say which one was right or wrong, Mm -hmm. but the public health folks were wrong to say you absolutely have to do this. Right. Okay. This was great. Steve, thank you. I hope you're well. Enjoy the Hudson Valley. It's pretty nice there in the summer. And I was telling Phoebe, you know, Phoebe's from Westchester. Yeah, Westchester. She didn't know about basketball. She'd never heard of it. Oh, really? Oh, uncultured. (laughs) All right. Well worth the visit. Yeah. Thanks, Steve. Okay, great. Good talking. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the discussion today. Please remember to subscribe and rate the podcast. Feel free to send us any feedback or suggestions at banter at AEI.org.